This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane, coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. For the first time in US history, a former president is facing possible criminal charges. The Congressional Committee that's been investigating last year's January the 6th attack on the US Capitol building has referred Donald Trump to the Department of Justice for possible prosecution. North America correspondent Barbara Miller has been following developments. There are referrals for four criminal charges against Donald Trump. Also, um, a couple of those against his former lawyer, John Eastman. Uh, they are obstruction of an official proceeding. That was the certification of Joe Biden's election result on January the 6th, 2020. That, of course, was interrupted by the attack on the US Capitol. Uh, the second one is conspiracy to defraud the United States. Then the third, conspiracy to make a false statement. And the fourth, inciting, assisting or aiding uh, an insurrection. And what we heard from the committee today on its final public meeting was essentially a, a summary, a, a best of, I guess, of the, the 10 uh, public hearings they've held in total over the past 18 months. And there. The gist of their argument is that Donald Trump summoned the mob, assembled the mob and lit the flame of the attack. Those were words spoken very early on in the investigation by Vice Chair uh, Liz Cheney. Uh, and essentially the committee members who all spoke today summarised that argument again. Uh, let's hear it now from Liz Cheney, the uh, Republican vice chair of that committee. She said that Donald Trump had demonstrated utter moral failure and a clear dereliction of duty. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. The committee recognizes that our work has only begun. It's only the initial step in addressing President Trump's effort to remain in office illegally. Prosecutors are considering the implications of the conduct that we describe in our report. Now, Barbara, these referrals aren't legally binding. So what happens now? Yeah, they will officially be sent to the Department of Justice, who can consider them. The Department of Justice is conducting its own investigation into January 6th. And in order to put uh, an arm's length between himself and that investigation, the Attorney General Merrick Garland has now appointed a special counsel, uh, Jack Smith, to oversee that investigation. Jack Smith could, uh, we would think, would certainly look at the evidence that the committee will provide uh, their full report will be publicly released later this week. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he has to bring charges. Um, so it's really uh, still a waiting game in that sense. Many Republicans will see the findings of this committee as a fait accompli. Uh, it has really prosecuted that argument since the very beginning that Donald Trump uh, was behind the attack on the Capitol. Uh, but we'll have to wait, I think, into the new year to really uh, find out whether the Department of Justice, throughout, through its own investigations, really wants to uh, make that move and pursue criminal charges against a former president. That's our North America correspondent, Barbara Miller. Countries at the United Nations Biodiversity Summit in Canada, including Australia, have signed a deal to protect at least 30% of the planet's vital ecosystems by 2030. 
It's being acknowledged as a significant agreement to save the world's lands and oceans. Some environment groups say it'll help efforts to stop extinctions, but there are flaws, as Matt Bamford reports. After weeks of tough negotiations, this was the climax of the COP15 UN Biodiversity Summit. We adopted the package of L25 to L30. I do not see objection. The package is adopted. A landmark agreement to protect the planet's biodiversity. The gathering in Montreal of about 195 countries, including Australia, was tasked with finalising a new global deal to halt damage to plants, animals and ecosystems. At times, it was unclear if any progress would be made at all. Kelly O'Shaughnessy from the Australian Conservation Foundation has been on the sidelines of the talks. Goodness, uh, if this is the way that global agreements are made, I'm worried for our globe. It was torturous the last few weeks. In the end, it was a, a good agreement, not a great agreement. Um, but to be honest, it's a little bit of a, it's a hard thing to get nearly 200 nations to agree to do something together. The details include a commitment to protect 30% of the world's land and 30% of its water for nature by 2030. Countries have agreed to try to halt species extinction, ensure natural resources are shared equally and that there's investment in maintaining biodiversity. And it'll have consequences for Australia. So that means places like the Murray-Darling, Toonda Harbour which is, uh, and Moreton Bay in Australia, which is currently under risk of unsustainable development, will hopefully have greater levels of protection. Australia now has some of the world's leading targets in protecting nature. And in fact, Australia, uh, we're excellent here, showed strong leadership here, and really tried to get the world to agree to ending extinction from now. Uh, we didn't get that across the line, uh, but what we need Australia to do now is to continue that leadership back at home and to actually deliver all of those commitments that we're talking about. That does mean we need a lot more money going into nature protection protection in Australia. Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek says the agreement is ambitious and a big step forward. But the commitment comes without any additional money and Kelly O'Shaughnessy says that's a shame. There was no new money committed by Australia here in Montreal. There was new funds committed by the EU and France and Germany and Canada. So it is disappointing that Australia didn't commit any new funds. It will be important that we commit more funds to help developing nations protect their biodiversity and natural areas. And within hours of this summit ending, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres was announcing another one to be held in September next year. The Climate Ambition Summit will be convened alongside a crucial gathering of world leaders to accelerate action at the midway point of the Sustainable Development Goals. And I am more determined than ever to make 2023 a year for peace, a year for action, as we cannot accept things as they are. We owe it to people to find solutions, to fight back and to act. The UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres ending that report by Matt Bamford. Billions of dollars in trade sanctions and the detention of two Australians are expected to dominate talks when the Foreign Minister Penny Wong travels to Beijing today. It's the first visit by a government minister in more than three years. The invitation from China's come as the two countries mark 50 years since diplomatic relations began. Andrew Green prepared this report. 
The ALP delegation stayed 12 days in China, seeing many standard tourist attractions. In 1971, then-opposition leader Gough Whitlam made history visiting China, a bold move that was soon followed by US President Richard Nixon. A year later, he was Prime Minister and diplomatic relations between Australia and the People's Republic of China were formally established. This initiative, which we took, will suit the Labor Party's interests, but also certain to suit Australia's interests. But the now 50-year relationship hit a new low at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, when Beijing slapped $20 billion worth of sanctions on Australian exports. That followed a series of Australian national security decisions that had angered China and a controversial call by the Morrison government for an international inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. Since the Albanese government's election in May, the diplomatic deep freeze has gradually thawed. I don't think we can expect any breakthrough. I think the most realistic thing to expect is a very nice communicate by both sides. And I think what they'll do is they'll, they'll keep talking. James Chin is a professor of Asian studies at the University of Tasmania. He believes Senator Penny Wong's visit to Beijing, which will last less than 24 hours, is important, but much more work will be needed. The way it works with the Chinese is that this is really the very first step in what we normally call confidence-building measures. I think for the Chinese side, they're very, very serious about resetting the relationship. So I think, yes, uh, there will be some follow-up meetings, but we should not expect any big news coming out of Beijing. The last Australian government minister to visit China was then-Trade Minister Simon Birmingham in 2019. He's now the coalition's foreign affairs spokesperson. It's welcome because it provides an opportunity to mark the 50th anniversary of our diplomatic relations and hopefully to work on some of the difficulties in the relationship at present, not the least of which being China's targeting of Australian exports and also of Australian individuals unfairly detained in China. The two most high-profile Australians behind bars are journalist Chung Lei and writer and activist Yang Heng Jun. Elaine Pearson is from Human Rights Watch. They are being arbitrarily detained and so I think it's really important that the Foreign Minister presses strongly for their release. Senator Wong's invitation to visit Beijing comes a month after Prime Minister Anthony Albanese met China's President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali. Andrew Green there. This trip is likely to be another step towards the stabilisation of Australia's relationship with China. But Australian exporters who lost their access to the Chinese market two years ago are cautious about what it might bring, as Angus Randall reports. Seafood exporter Andrew Ferguson used to send 400 tonnes of southern rock lobsters from South Australia to China each year. Oh, China market was very important. 98% of our lobster was going in there before the closure. It was an export market worth 50 to $60 million to his company and suppliers. But when China imposed bans on Australian wine, barley, beef and seafood in 2020, that market evaporated and his lobsters were lost in transit. Well, we woke up without any warning, really, one morning to hearing rumours that the, the, the market was going to shut on that particular day. It was too late, really. We had to, we had to stop at customs and they just, didn't, they just didn't get any further and the lobsters in the containers died on the, died in customs in uh, 
in Pudong Airport. While there's no guarantee those trade bans are about to be lifted, Andrew Ferguson is cautious about whether it would be worth returning to the Chinese market. I'm feeling a little bit mixed about it all because uh, just the concerns of the instability, when things are unstable, it's hard to run a business. It's a similar story for Taylor's Wines in South Australia's Clare Valley. Mitchell Taylor had been building a presence in China for 30 years, only to see it disappear. Yeah, the doors were shut very quickly. All of a sudden overnight, we were slapped with a 218% duty. So it basically stopped an industry that was basically heading towards $1.4 billion worth of sales basically just stopped overnight. Andrew Wiedemann is a barley farmer in the Wimmera in Western Victoria and former chair of Grain Producers Australia. He says rural communities have lost millions of dollars thanks to the China shutout. At its peak, we were exporting close to 6 million tonnes of uh, barley from Australia to China and of course when uh, the tariff was imposed that trade actually stopped basically overnight. It's been uh, you know a bit of a transition we're growing less barley now than we were and we've been able to find other markets as well. Andrew Wiedemann's hopeful Australian barley will eventually return to China. My gut feeling and, and the contacts that I have in China myself, uh, they want Australian barley. So I'm always confident that we're going to get back in there. It's just a matter of when. And when the governments can basically heal the wounds between them, I think we'll all benefit. With China remaining Australia's largest trading partner, this whirlwind trip could be a crucial step towards persuading Beijing to unwind the sanctions against Australian goods. Angus Randall there. Australia's experiencing a severe shortage of antibiotics, particularly ones that treat common illnesses like chest or urinary tract infections. While doctors are worried about their patients, one expert says the shortages aren't new and that problems with the supply chain need to be urgently addressed. Catherine Gregory reports. GP Ken McCorry, who works in southwestern Sydney, says the shortage of common antibiotics is harming some of his patients, particularly the vulnerable ones. We had a lady the other day, instead of just treating her respiratory infection, she had some mild bronchitis, she ends up with pneumonia and then she ends up with cardiomyopathy on top of that. The Therapeutic Goods Administration recently flagged that amoxicillin, kefalexin and metronidazole antibiotics that treat chest ear, bladder and skin infections are in short supply. That's because of high demand globally and manufacturing problems. But the TGA says plenty of alternatives are available, although Dr Macquarie says it's not that straightforward for patients. They've now got to try three, four, five different pharmacies. You know, and, and if they're not getting access, then there's a greater chance they're not going to get treated. He says these shortages are nothing new. They're just getting worse and other medicines have also been affected. Sydney mother Sarah experienced problems earlier this year trying to source another type of antibiotic called Bactrim to treat her three-year-old daughter's recurrent urinary tract infections. None of the pharmacies had this particular antibiotic that we needed. It was super stressful. She was in quite substantial pain. Um, I couldn't just pop her in the car and go driving around like we'd already been to so many pharmacies already. I was genuinely really concerned that we wouldn't find the antibiotic. Eventually, after a lot of phone calls over several days, Sarah found the medicine just out of Sydney and her sister collected it. So what's going on? John Blackburn is chair for the Institute of Integrated Economics Research Australia, which looks at Australia's resilience and supply chains. An increase in demand in the Northern Hemisphere uh, for particular moments of, of uh, infections, but also there's still the ongoing supply chain problems 
and shortages. We've seen that problem during the pandemic. The scale of the problem was well known years ago. The other issue, he says, is over 90% of our medicines are imported. Mr Blackburn's worried nothing's being done. And there was no current strategy or plan to address our medicine supply chain resilience. Professor John Skerritt, the Deputy Secretary of the Health Department and head of the TGA, says the current shortages are a global issue beyond Australia's control. But actions being taken to try to improve the situation in the long term. We're getting improved intelligence on the manufacturing of different antibiotics and who has them. Some of the big regulators are providing incentives, commercial incentives for, for companies to develop incentives and to bring them through and take them through to the market. And because we interact closely with the regulators, those incentives will flow through to us. But it will be a couple of years till we start to see more and more antibiotics on the Australian market. That's Professor John Skerritt, the head of Australia's therapeutic regulator, the TGA, ending Catherine Gregory's report. Russian President Vladimir Putin's made a rare trip out of the country to meet one of his few remaining European allies, the Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko. It's prompted speculation that Moscow will make another attempt in the new year to seize Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, with the help of Belarus. Europe correspondent Isabella Higgins reports. Residents in Kyiv woke to a familiar sound on Monday. Officials say the city's infrastructure was targeted in a drone attack, the latest in a series of assaults on the country's energy grid. It also destroyed a number of houses, leaving residents homeless in freezing temperatures. 84-year-old Ola Kobzarenko says her street was engulfed by flames. There was one very loud explosion. We did not know how it would end for us. We could not see anything from the window facing that side of the street. We just saw the entire area lit up by fire. It's the third Russian airstrike on the Ukrainian capital in about six days. Millions were temporarily cut off from power and water at the weekend. Ms Kobzarenko says locals have learned to live with the constant warfare. We've gotten used to what is happening. It's scary indeed. Thoughts of possibly becoming homeless are certainly terrifying. Everyone is scared. We're bearing it. Last week, Ukrainian officials warned they fear a fresh ground offensive may come from Moscow in the new year, including another attempt to retake the capital, possibly launched from Belarus, only 150 kilometres from Kiev. The Kremlin rejected reports President Vladimir Putin travelled to Minsk on Monday to meet with Alexander Lukashenko to firm up military support. The pair held a joint media appearance where President Lukashenko boasted of the country's close political and military ties. Closer integration of our states once again demonstrates to the whole world that we can overcome any pandemic, crisis or sanctions only together. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky called on Western leaders meeting in Latvia to supply the country more weapons. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak urged all countries to continue backing Ukraine. And that means more air defence systems, it means artillery, it means armoured vehicles. For our part in the United Kingdom, we've pledged to match or exceed 
the £2.3 billion in aid that we provided this year, next year. This is Isabella Higgins in London reporting for AM. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lang. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.